0: Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah's Upper Room Bible study class led by Pastor Jim Oddie. This week is a little special, not in that we will be completing our series on the Ten Commandments, but March 5th, 2019 marked the one-year anniversary of when this podcast was launched. So I just wanted to take a brief moment before the show to say thank you. Whether this is your first time listening, your 52nd, or your 100th, thank you so much for listening to Messiah's Upper Room and being a part of the discussion. Now, on with the show. Enjoy.
1: Well, good morning. Can you hear that okay? Can you hear it okay? Okay, good. Well, it's good to be back among the heated... I did uh, help with my niece's wedding last, uh, last week in Brainerd, Minnesota, if you know where that is on the map. Um, it was 9 degrees when we woke up in, uh, on the day of the wedding, and then it warmed up to a balmy 20. So that was pretty good. But uh, it, been, it had been quite a while since I had been way up north like that. The last time that I was on purpose was... Uh, <laughs> Was on vicarage, so I did my vicarage in northern Michigan. To sort of place it on the map, is about 60 miles south of the Mackinac Bridge. That's where I was, and and I I, I only have myself to blame for that, because when you uh, when you're in seminary and you're preparing for your vicarage, they actually do give you a little bit of input. In terms of where it is that you would like to go. So I just, you know, I overanalyzed the uh, situation and thought to myself, well, if I volunteer to go north, then what will happen when it comes time to get a call out of the seminary? They'll send me south. I mean, you know, and that maybe I would come up with some medical reason not to go north after that. Well, it was so cold that year in Michigan, I never got sick. Yeah, I think all the germs were dead, uh, and uh, so anyway, that was the year of 1978-79, when I was told that all four of the Great Lakes froze at the same time, and, and it was how fortunate I was there for that, yes. Yeah, John. We were- moving from Farmington Hills in Michigan out to Kalamazoo. Yeah. In blizzard of 78. Yes. And I had to wait for the last of the van to be loaded. Yes. My wife and uh, the babies took off. They got stranded for four days at a hotel in Kalamazoo yeah. before I could get there. Yeah. So that was a pretty cold. So, so this time when I was up there, I was well fortified. I had purchased some long underwear, which was so nice. And then uh, and then I had my coat from like 20 years ago and it still fit me, and my gloves and i had bought a hat, and uh, so this was like the perfect deal. It was really oh and boots. I I got some boots too. So um, I was telling somebody that um, while I was at the wedding, I didn't gain any weight, which was amazing given the cake they had. Um, but i think i burned off all the calories walking in the snow you know i think that's i think that's what that was so anyway my brother-in-law he's the father of the bride and he is a lutheran pastor as well so uh, we've known each other many 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 years we uh, we all went to school together so he did the The main bulk of the wedding, which was to tell his daughter how it should be. And then I got to do the first part of the wedding since he walked, uh, since he walked her down the aisle. So it was very, very nice. Um, Gina, good job. Yeah. Yeah. Just so you know, I always listen to the, uh, I listen to all of our episodes, partly because if anything goes wrong, then I'm the one whose name is on this, so, uh, so I do, but so thank you for that. It really came out great, and uh, I expect nothing short of fame and fortune for you in the coming, <laughs> yes, yeah, this could be the start of the whole, a whole new thing. Are there any uh, uh, comments or thoughts from Gina's uh, leading you in conversation? What was, the main, what was the main point last week? Yeah, this is really a good sign, Gina, you know. <laughs> The, don't worry. I get the same blank look whenever I ask this question. Remember, okay, uh, talking about words, right? Words matter. How you use words.
0: Right Word up there. The Think.
1: Where does it say that? Oh, I see. Think. Wow, that's really great. Okay, yeah. In the sermon today, Peter he probably would have benefited from some of this. You know, ahead of time, very good. Well, thank you again for doing that. Today, we're finishing up the commandments, no matter what, right? We're doing nine and ten together because they both deal with the kind of the same thing in terms of uh, what thinking about your your heart's desire and how does that translate into your daily your daily walk with Jesus. So, what we're going to do next week? Is start a kind of a little mini series. I say mini, not knowing exactly how many it will be. It might be mini six, and it might be mini two. I don't. I don't know. We'll see. But um, but I'm going to do it on a uh, little thing I've always kind of wanted to do, called famous people you never heard of. And so I'm going to go through the scriptures and find stories about people that don't often get much of a of a spotlight. But the the uh, the role that they have in the story or just the story itself has some some pretty good uh, life lessons to uh, to lean on. And so I think it'll be uh, I think we'll have uh, some fun with that. So just so to give wet your appetite a little bit next week, we're going to we're going to talk about Jethro. You know who Jethro is? OK, who's Jethro? That was Moses' father-in-law. Was Moses father-in-law. So what we're going to explore is what do you do when you think you're doing everything right? And then your father-in-law butts in and tells you that things aren't going so well. In other words, how do you handle those kind of relationships? And uh, and if you're the father-in-law, how do you give advice to Your son-in-law, or to your uh, your daughter-in-law, how do you do that in a gracious way? So I think, well, that gives you a little sense of kind of what we're going to do. It'll be fun. It'll be uh, light, uh, lightweight, but uh, I think we'll have uh, have a good time with it, and or at least I will. Okay, so we'll uh, (laughs) we'll uh, we'll uh, we'll do it that way. All right. Well, let's uh, let's get into our lesson for today. Then uh, the ninth and tenth commandments So let's read together out loud. Uh, both of those commandments and the and the meeting uh, meanings there. Okay, ready? You shall not covet your neighbor's house. We should fear and love God that we may not craftily seek to get our neighbor's inheritance or house, nor obtain it by show of right, but help and be of service to him in keeping it. All right. And then the 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his cattle, nor anything that is in your neighbors. We should fear and love God that we made a strange force entice away from our neighbor, his wife, servants or cattle, but urge them to stay and do their duty. All right. So a good place to start is with the word covet in terms of what does it mean to covet something. And so one definition is to hold a deep desire for something or someone belonging to someone else. Now, as I was looking at that and thinking about that, it occurred to me that there's probably a benign sense in which you do that And then there's more of a toxic sense in which you do that, all right? So the benign sense would be that you're aware of something that belongs to someone else or someone that belongs to someone. You're aware of that, and it might kindle some thoughts of what that would be like to be with that person or to have that thing. So you can kind of see where maybe just that the thought of that, doesn't quite live up to what it is that Luther's talking about in, the, in, in his meaning. So then you think of it in terms of the toxic sense of that, is that you take that, that kindled desire, if you will, and you begin to scheme in some way to either manipulate it or to obtain it, as he says, by show of right somehow. That, that it becomes almost a fixation, it becomes almost an obsession that somehow you're going to obtain that or somehow you're going to give that. Does that make sense to think of it that way? You can kind of see where the benign sense of that could absolutely lead to the toxic sense of that. All right. But by the same token, I mean, I don't really know how possible it is to go through life and have never have a thought about anything that anybody else has or does. So I would sort of caution it from that perspective of saying, well, okay, you probably will have a thought, but that doesn't mean that it's okay to move it into the toxic sense of that. Does that, does that kind of fit? It, it's a little bit, maybe a little bit more of a pragmatic perspective. But we think in terms of where would that come from and how does the, the, the question of one's desires fit into that. Okay. And so we get a little bit of a clue. If we look at James 1, 13 to 16, James says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin And sin, when it is full full grown, gives birth to death. So he says, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. How many of you enjoy fishing? Fishing. okay, fishing. Yeah, fishing is really fun because if you catch fish, that makes it really fun. Um, When I was in Missouri serving the little church that I was at, um, there were a number of, of farms and ranchers that had these farm ponds. And, uh, and there were a lot of uh, clear uh, rivers. So I got to learn how to fly fish and I got to learn how to, how to do ultralight kinds of stuff. I had my waders and everything. I was really decked out. Just one um, little side note on that. What I learned is, is that the expense of all the equipment, including the rate of the waders, does not translate into the number of fish that you catch. And so there is some question about who was actually being fished, right, as opposed to uh, who was actually doing the fishing. And one of the things that I figured out was that sometimes it ruins a perfectly good outing if you catch fish. Right? Yeah. That sometimes it's fun to just go out there and be in nature, and and you hear the water, and you have all these things. And plus, if you're a lousy fisherman like me, you have to come up with some other excuse as to why it is that you didn't catch fish that uh, that day. But what's the deal with fishing? If you fish, what is it that you always want to do with respect to the thing you throw in the water that is on one one uh, uh, end of which? the line is attached to. You're trying to do what? Catch the fish by, and he catches himself by doing what? Going after the lure and getting caught on the hook. And so the best fishermen are the ones who can bury that hook in such a way that the fish doesn't see the hook until it's too late. That's what we're talking about here, right? Is that with respect to enticement, With respect to um, the idea of being tempted, notice what he says is that even though the temptation would be to blame God and to say, Well, God, if you hadn't led me into that situation, then it would have been okay, right? That's tempting. He says that isn't what God does. He says, When it comes to temptation, when it comes to moving from that benign sense to a more toxic place with, uh, with coveting, he says that we are dragged away by what? By our own evil desire. The assumption is, is that we are selfish by nature. And that when it comes down to it, in that moment of temptation, that's when we are most susceptible or most vulnerable, not to something out there, we are most vulnerable to our own thinking in that moment or to our own, as he says, evil desire. And so then you can kind of see where he goes through this, uh, this sort of sequence. He says, well, if at any point you stop where you are, then you're not going to have a problem. If you stop yourself at the benign level, you're not going to have an issue with the toxic level. But if you don't stop yourself at the toxic level then what, what is it that happens? He says, desire has conceived and it gives birth to sin. So the thought, the sin thought that we have, the sin of the heart that we have, if you don't stop it at that point, what happens? It leads to sinful action. That's where it goes. And that's where you get again, that that we've now moved uh, definitely into, into toxicity. All right. And then he says, if you can still stop there, right? But if you don't stop there, then what happens? Sin gives birth to death. Now, what kind of death are we talking about? Pardon? We certainly are talking about spiritual death. In what way could this lead to spiritual death? Can you spiritually kill yourself on the basis of coveting and acting on that covetousness in your life? Could you? How could you? Because somebody said it. Because what? You don't pretend. No. And our, the focus of life now becomes all about me. God gets pushed right out of the picture, or God is sort of second, secondary. But what happens is it's a life given over to self-gratification. It's a life given over to to all about me. Now, could physical death result as well? In Texas, you can get shot, right? I mean... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and people are. I mean, actually, you could. And so there's some sense of death being uh, not just simply spiritual, but also, uh, also physical. So w- notice what he, he ends that with. He says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. I think one of the most powerful deceptions there are that we are very often susceptible to is not the deception from out there. It's the deception from in here where we self deceive ourselves into justifying whatever it is that we think it is that we need or want in that moment. And the best example that I can think of that is in where when we go down to Genesis three and we look at what happened between Adam and Eve and the interaction between Adam and Eve and uh, and Satan, because what happens with covetousness is that it flows out of a heart that is discontented with God's will. Now, whenever I talk about God's will, I like to talk about it as the what and the when. Does that make sense? You know, sometimes we think in terms of God's will limited to the what. What is it that God is doing? What is it that God is allowing? What is it that I'm doing when I'm doing it? But I have, as I get older, I, I think i have kind of realizing this a little bit, is that sometimes God's will has more to do with the when than it has to do with the what. Have you ever felt impatient with God's will in terms of the when? Have you ever felt impatient? Oh, my, yes, we, we would. We would say, oh, Lord, I know what it is you want to do for me right now, right? We, we get very impatient with that and very... Uh, susceptible to somehow then tying our faith in him and his promises to the notion that he's going to do it sooner than later. And so one of the uh, aspects of faith, I think that's, uh, you know, is tough is waiting for God to do the what according to his timing instead of according to my timing. But you can see where if the heart is, is filled with, with uh, discontentment, How susceptible then a person would be to think that God does not know what's best for me. I know what's best for me. And I'm going to act on what I think God, uh, I'm going to act on what I believe I know is best for me. And you can see where the longer you go in that thinking and the more you act on that thinking, then what starts to happen? God becomes secondary if he is considered at all. And now I'm the one who gets to decide what is right for me or what is best for me, and that's the world, frankly, that we live in today. Almost every, almost every commercial that you see on TV or uh, however you get your news or whatever, okay, it, the underlying message is you know what's right for you. Okay, now on some level we do, well, we hope we do, right? But very rarely do you ever hear or sense that there's this notion that, um, um, that God might know a little bit better about what we need than we do. Yeah. The other word that's always in there is deserve. <coughs> Pardon? Um, the other word that's always in the commercial is deserve. Yes. Have you, have you started to hear that? You know, one of the, the things about acquiring a discerning ear is that you start to hear what's really there, not just what is on the surface there. And I've noticed that too. It's that you, it's what you deserve. And of course, you can see where the word deserve would automatically set up the likelihood of discontent. Can you see that? Because when you think about what you deserve in life, how high is that bar? of what you deserve, either from, from yourself or from other people or from your spouse or from your government or from your school or your work? How high is that bar in terms of what you feel you deserve? Not what you're getting, okay, but just what you deserve. How high is it? Oh, way high, because we look at our contribution or we look at our effort and we say, well, my effort is like way up here, so I deserve something commiserate to that, right? Yeah.
0: It's interesting because I use the uh,
1: McDonald's commercial to discuss the very idea. You, you, I'm sorry, you use what? The McDonald's. The McDonald's uh, commercial. commercial. Okay, very good. There's a the tagline, you deserve a break. You deserve a break today, yes. Ask my eighth graders, what's the proof?
0: <laughs> and it just blew their minds. They were like, you're right.
1: <laughs> Wow. You got eighth graders to agree with you. Wow. (laughs) Awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. But it was really interesting because
0: they they were like, oh, wow. I never thought
1: of that. That's right. But that's the underline. And now it's not just underline. I think now it's a very overt message that says you deserve better. You deserve better. You deserve better. And so you can see where if I deserve up here and what I get for my effort is here, then what's in the gap? Discontent. Discontent. Now, I mean, I guess a little bit of discontent is not a bad thing. Maybe we could use the benign toxic idea that benign uh, uh, discontent actually can fuel me to work harder, right? Right. I can, I can maybe do better. Maybe I can put more effort into something. Maybe I can uh, grow in my uh, expertise of something and then offer that. So maybe there is a little bit of that in a, in a benign sense. But what about in a toxic sense? Toxic discontent then turns into this perpetual unhappiness. I deserve better. I deserve better. I deserve better. Okay? Okay. <laughs> So good for you to pick up on that. That's, see, again, part of what we want to be able to do is, is hear what's really being said so that we can address it and so that we can challenge it if, uh, if, that is, uh, if, if that is what's needed. So let's look at Genesis 3 and see if we can kind of get some sense of that from this particular uh, story in, uh, in the scriptures, all right? So he says, now the serpent was more crafty. Than any of the wild animals, the Lord God had made. So remember there in the, and still in the garden here, he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the servant, well, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die. Said the serpent to the woman. Why did, why did, when Satan said, did God really say, why did that work? Why did that work? It made her like question, like start Confusion. to think about questioning, like, did he really say that? Did he not really say that? Did I, you know, like so it, it, uh, it triggered something. You get the sense though that it was already on her mind. And isn't that often the way that enticement works is that it's already on my mind. And then Satan comes along and does what? He builds on that and he sort of tweaks that. And the next thing you know, I'm thinking the same thing in a more toxic way. What what clue would you think, and maybe this is just from human nature more than it is from anything that we read in the text, but what makes you think maybe that the tree might have been already on Eve's mind, and probably Adam too, but for sure it, the, the the dynamic here is between Satan and, and Eve. What makes you think maybe that might have been the case? Because it was forbidden. It was forbidden. So... God had said, you get everything, you get 99.9% of everything, and then that one thing you don't get. So why would something forbidden be on her mind? It was, um, a, test, a test to see if they obeyed. Okay, and if they would be content with God's provision except in that one thing, right? So when was the last time someone said to you, don't touch that? (laughs) You know, the classic one would be, of course, you know, you bake a plate of cookies and you put them right out there on the counter And you smell the aroma of, aren't your your mouth is watering right now, I just know, right? And and so you smell that and you have this Pavlovian response like a zombie. You just want to go right to it. And then the person says, but don't touch this until after you've had your dinner. Well, as soon as that person says, Don't touch this, what is now cemented in your brain, right, is to what? Yeah, is to go after the very thing that we're said not to go after. And in fact, what happens is, is that all the other goodness that is in your life at that point now does not matter a bit, because what really matters is that I could get a hold of some of those cookies. That's human nature, right? Yeah, Brenda.
0: Two factors. Two factors. Okay. First of all, Eve had no reason to be on guard against deceit Uh because they had never been deceived. Correct. And the other thing is when you forbid something, you make them think about it and remember it's forbidden.
1: That's correct. And so was God setting them up? We'll cover that next year. How about that? Okay. Yeah. You know, but see that, that's, that goes back to the James passage then, because we think, oh, well, God must be setting them up. Oh no. James remind us that when we're tempted, we're tempted by our own desires, not by God. And yet there is kind of that mystery of that. Now, one of the things that you're pointing out is very true. They were totally. this was innocence, which we can't even comprehend what that must have been like to have innocence. But the issue here really was one of trust in God's promises and his provision. And the whole idea that when God says something is good for you and God says something is not good for you, am I going to believe that? Am I going to trust it? And what happens if I start thinking to myself, you know, I think God's holding out on me. I think that maybe there might just be some aspect of this where God does not want me to experience the full happiness and joy that I know I what? Deserve. And so that becomes then the easiest thing in the world is to then justify on the basis of that why it is that we deserve to take take one of those cookies. Why it is that we deserve to uh, engage in something that God has already said, this is foolish. And not only is this foolish, but it's bad for you. So there's another clue, though. It's hard to sort of uh, think of it from this perspective, but I just want to sort of have you entertain this idea. When God originally told Adam about the tree of knowledge of good and evil, what is it that he actually said to Adam about their relationship to the tree? He said, you can eat of any tree in the garden He said, but you must not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And then Eve adds something that God didn't say. Don't touch it. it. And that sort of suggests, see, that there was already a fixation on it, that she was already thinking about it. Maybe I shouldn't touch it. Maybe I shouldn't touch it. God never said you can't touch it. God just said, don't eat of it. Now, it probably would have been smart for them not to touch it either. Right. Obviously, if you're going to eat it, you would have to touch it. But it sort of suggests that there there was already some thinking going on there with respect to that their relationship to the tree. And so she would have. Uh, and so she add, added that. Well, then, of course, Satan, that leads right into Satan then saying, well, you know, you're not going to die. Did she believed him. Huh? She believed him. She did. Bec- but see, why is it easier in that moment to believe Satan than it would be to believe God? Because she's already fixated on the truth. Because you're already thinking that way. Yeah. So see the, the, the trap, if you will, or the, the path, let's use that word, the path, you're already on the path. If you're already on the path, it's that much easier. And that's where this idea of toxic or benign versus toxic. If I don't ever get on the path in the first place, that's the best thing. Well, take it back a
0: step. I mean, you kind of you can build a whole lesson on this, but take it back a step. Why did God put the tree there in the first place?
1: Yeah. That was kind of lousy of him to do that, wasn't it? <laughs> All right. But why did he do that? Why did God do that? You ever think about that? Just now. Just now yeah. Okay. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So we're we're poking around in your brain and making some new thoughts happen. See what what why the why and not necessarily why that tree. It could have been any tree, but but why one tree? Yeah. I think he did it partly so he could prove to them, or they could prove to themselves that they are being obedient. And and the and the reason the reason he was fixed fixated on, I think, is because God created an exception out of that tree. So you can visualize all these other trees that are this height, and you got one
0: sticking up. That's the one you're going to focus on, and I think that, in retrospect,
1: it would be nice if they even said, why? Because that, that was the thing. The first, the first thing you're going to ask, our curiosity is going to say, why can't I touch that tree? Yeah, and we kind of want God to explain himself in a way that fits our thinking, right? Well, okay, God, I'm willing to do what you want me to do, but I need for you to explain exactly why it is. I'm not going to take your word on faith or trust. I want you to explain it to me. And then if I think your argument has merit, right? If I think that you are presenting a logical reason and it fits with my preconceived idea of what I deserve, well, then I'm good with that. But the problem is what? We're never good with it, right? Yeah. Did you have your hand up? I was just going to say, it was um, was interesting that she added kind of a poke at God, how unfair he is that she can't even touch the truth. That's right. That's right. So see, there's, you, you get the sense that there's already high interest in, in that. And have you noticed something that when you have access to all the blessings in the world, except for the one blessing, right? The one thing that all the other things taste lousy because you're thinking to yourself, oh, that, that plate of cookies would be way better than all the apples and all the oranges and all the blackberries and all the healthy foods that we ought to be eating, right? In order for good things in our lives, you know, those things, oh, those taste terrible. But oh my gosh, that plate of cookies that I have not yet uh, involve myself in, but I certainly am thinking about, oh, that would be wonderful. And notice then what happens is our comparison changes. The comparison changes and it's not real. The cookies might be wonderful, but so is everything else. Okay. But think about it from this perspective of why God put that tree there in the first place. Without the tree, it would have been so easy for them to begin to believe that they were God. Because what did they have in their life that also God had? Now, they didn't create everything, so obviously that would be a difference between them and God. But what did God do? He gave them what? Dominion over everything, which is exactly what God had. And so God wanted to protect them from that illusion that somehow they as human beings, they as the created were on the same plane or the same level with the creator. And so the way God did that was he said, you can have dominion over everything except guess what? You can't eat of that tree. And so it did become a faith thing. It did become an obedience thing. But it was obedience born out of the fact that God knows that human beings do not do well when they think they are God. Right? Now, notice then what was Satan's temptation? What was the promise, one of the promises that he made? You will be like God. I mean, who in their right mind would not want that? Right? You ever wanted to be God? Oh, come on. Okay, let me ask it differently. Have you ever wanted to change somebody? Okay. Yes. Sure. Why? Because they were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> because they were wrong. Yeah. All right. Rules of not doing life the way that it should be in my head. In your head, that's correct. That, as, you, as you deserve, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> So if you could change somebody, what would that, well, of what benefit would that be for you? Proving you like that. It would prove that, but I'm saying in terms of, of your day-to-day walk, uh, uh, would that be a good thing? Would that be a bad thing? Would that be a benefit to you if you could change other people? Probably, yeah. yeah. Probably, you know. I don't want to be around you, that's for sure. Because then what would life be like for everyone else? around you, it'd be pretty lousy. And, and plus you would begin to devote your life to changing other people. You would have no way there. And this is human nature. We don't say no easily to ourselves. We don't say to ourselves, that's enough. Stop. Stop. Because the nature of self-deception is, is that I can continue to talk myself into doing stupid things. And then I can say, but, and it's for the good of others, (laughs) right? Okay. So see, God knows us. He, he made us. He knew them. He knew that. And he said, this is not going to be good for you. It won't be good for your relationships. It won't be good for my relationship with you. Right. And so God was protecting them from that because God himself is the best one to be God. Humans are not designed to be God, and I think that in, in, in some sense is what he's uh, what he's going after here, all right? So then the story, of course, is that she ate, grabbed, took some of the fruit, and then she ate it, and then she gave some to Adam. You know, uh, there's been uh, lots of speculation in this story about what would have happened if Adam had said no. Oh, yeah, that's a good one, isn't it, right there, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Every husband here is going, oh, yeah, right. Uh Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, I know. Well, and so anyway, when I was in seminary, we speculated about such things. What if he had said no? Would sin still be in the world? Well, we don't have to worry about it because he said yes. And so so anyway, he ate. And then notice something, the promise that that to some degree, Satan's promise came true because they didn't die at least not physically. Now death came into the world obviously through that, but, 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 you know, you, you, eat of it, you'll die. Well, we ate of it and guess what? We didn't die, but they died spiritually. And that was a, a deeper sort of death at that point than it would have been in terms of, of, of physical death. And so then now notice how wise they are. Remember, because part of the promise was that you will be gaining wisdom. I mean, uh, talk about a self-justification moment there of saying to yourself, I can engage in this sin so that now I can learn more. I can gain more. So how smart were they? They realize that they're naked. And so what do they do with that? Not, well, yeah, they did. They, the, the hiding shows up later in, in a different part of the chapter. But, but at least right here in verse 7, what is it that they do? Yeah, they sow fig leaves to go. Now, how smart is that? Now, we're assuming that in the Garden of Eden, there were large, uh, you know, big figs, you know, big figs, meaning like big leaves. But what's the problem with having, uh, anything living that you cut off of a tree and then you sew a garment with it. What's the problem with that? It lasts about a day. Now, maybe it would have been three days, you know, so there would have been this sort of learning now by trial and error. And that certainly would have affected that. Okay. So again, you can kind of see where that the idea of being enticed, I kind of go back to that in terms of coveting. All right. Is that My contribution to being enticed and then giving in to the sin of coveting and then allowing coveting to turn into some action on my part, my contribution to that is that I let myself go there in the first place and that what fuels that is discontent, discontent. And so the caution that we have to be aware of, I think, in our own lives, in our walk with Jesus, is that, number one, be aware of where you are discontented. Increase your awareness of that. Because I, I do think that the more awareness that you have about that at least it's going to be a little easier to be able to hear yourself starting to justify that you deserve better and it's okay for you to go ahead and engage or imbibe in whatever that thing is that you're, that you're fixated on. If you're not aware of it, I just think that on some level, we're kind of blindly walking into it. And sometimes you don't realize you're in the quicksand until you get up to your neck in it. And then you go, oh, my, how did I get here? If I could just be aware of it a little better, I think that would make some difference. Does that make sense? Any thoughts about that? None? Okay, good. You guys are buying into everything I say. That's awesome. (laughs) All right. so, So let's take a look at then this idea of discontent. And insecurity, the combination of those two things. And I think that's part of what's going on in our world today. That you think in terms of why would a message such as, you deserve, and then fill in the blank. Why would that stick? Because I think part of the message there is not just about happiness, but it's also about security that if it's sort of like the, the, the thought would be, you deserve to be happy. You deserve to have security in life. And so if you, and then fill in the blank, if you wear certain things, if you hang out with certain people, if you get 20 hits on your Instagram, uh, uh deal, if, whatever it is, if you do that, then what, then you'll be happy. Then you'll be secure. And even if you're not happy, at least you'll be secure, right? So, so you think in terms of what those core needs are that people inherently have. Happiness, yeah, we say that's a core need, but security, that's a huge one. How do I know I'll be safe in the world? How do I know that things will be okay? If I can't be secure, well, then maybe I can just be happy. But the best would be is if what I could be both of those, right? Okay. So let's take a, let's take a look at that in terms of that. So, so one of the, one of the messages that often gets uh, promoted, I think in our world today, is this idea of believing that inner peace can be gained only if you can control your external circumstances, right? In other words, uh, hang out with the right people, uh, live in the right community, uh, go to the right church, right? What, you know, whatever it is, that whatever is the right thing externally, if those things are right, if those things are true for you, then you can have happiness, then you can have security, all right? And so we want to think, think in terms of where the fallacy in that thinking might be. And a good place to look is in Matthew 4, 1 to 11, where After Jesus was baptized, so remember he in the water, the dove, the whole thing, then we pick it up in Matthew 4, 1 to 11, where it says, then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After 40, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered "It is written man shall not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Okay, now, looking at the story. What is the, what is the external circumstance for Jesus? He's hungry, obviously, because he's been fasting. Now, fasting in the way that the prophet would do that in the wilderness was not going completely without food. In this case, it would be... Um, Uh, having sort of hard tack you know what hard tack is kind of in uh, Moby Dick days that's what the uh, uh, soldiers and sailors often would have is a real hard crusty bread kind of thing you could barely sustain yourself on it but you could be sustained and then some form of water okay there would have been some liquid I mean 40 days and 40 nights now we're tempted to think well he was God so it would be different for him can we go there with that? No, because why? He's human. So he's in his human nature. Now he is God, but he's in his human nature doing this. So that's why the Bible says that after all of that, he was hungry. That was his external reality. This was hard. Now, how many of you have traveled in the desert? Were you like walking through the desert when you traveled through it? You were like for 40 days and 40 nights? No. Oh, okay. Boy Scouts. Boy Scouts. Okay, Boy Scouts. So you were, as a Boy Scout, would have been always prepared, (laughs) right? Hopefully. Okay. So how hard is it to be in the desert or be in the wilderness? And those of you that have traveled over there kind of know this is tough terrain, okay? This is like, I don't know, what in Texas would be like that? Big Bend or something like that? Is that what it'd be like? Or Davis Mountains, maybe something like that? So what are the nights like? in the desert or in the wilderness? Cold. Okay. So we have super cold. All right. And then what is, what are the days like? Yeah. And so then you get the extremes, right? 40 days and 40 nights, I think would wipe out any of us. You ever thought about why it was 40? 40 shows up a lot in the Bible and there is some significance to that. So what, why 40? So what do you have? 40. You have uh you have what? You have um it Noah rains forty days and forty nights, okay. Yeah. Oh, someone's gonna Google this. This is very good, thank you. Yeah. Uh oh, somebody already did. Oh, there we go. Um yeah, I'm have to be on my toes now. The wilderness wanderings was for how long? Forty years, okay. So there is this sort of suggestion that Jesus is kind of in some sense the new Israel. He's the new Moses, so to speak. And the, the Christian church is the new Israel. I mean, is that, is that would be kind of fun to study that sometime to take a look at that. But but anyway, that's the, the, it's not insignificant that it's 40 days, 40 nights. But the reality is, are you taking my picture? You. No, know, but yeah. it says it's, it's mentioned 146 times in Scripture. The number 40 generally symbolizes a period of testing, trial, or probation. And so the way this worked for People of Jesus's profession. See, what was his profession other than savior? Rabbi. Well, his dad was a carpenter. We, presumably, he would have known how to, you know, nail things. I mean, we presume that. Okay. But what was his profession? He was trained to be what? A rabbi. A, a teacher of the faith. All right. And so part of the deal for teachers of the faith, particularly if there were some prophetic uh, aspect to their life was that they would go, after their schooling, they would go out into the wilderness and really be schooled. Tough life. Where did John the Baptist come from when he started preaching? The wilderness. See, there was some sense of that you got to go out there and you got to be on your own and you have to survive and this is going to be very tough. And now it's just between you and the elements and, and more deeper than that, it's you and God. There's struggle involved in that. So we get some sense of that, that uh, in terms of Jesus. So this would not have been unfamiliar to him, but the, the extra meaning here is that he's led out into the wilderness by what the spirit of God to be what tempted by Satan. So there's a little deeper purpose here going on with Jesus. And so he is at his weakest human point right? I can imagine that the human nature of Jesus at that point would have been thinking, I don't deserve this. I'm the son of God. I'm the chosen one. I don't deserve this. It's not too uh, much of a stretch for us to think in terms of humanly that he might've thought that same thing to him. Okay. So what does Satan do? His strategy is to do what? Is to tap into normal human con- discontent with the current circumstance. In this case, the current circumstance was tired, hungry. I just want to go home. You know, whatever was that part of that. All right. And so the undercurrent message that Satan is actually giving to, uh, to Jesus is, you know, you would be happier if you would just use your power to serve yourself. And what was the dangle, what was the lure that Satan was using to attract Jesus like a fisherman does with a bass? What was the lure? Do what? Turn these stones into bread. Use your power to do what? To meet your need. That's right, to meet your need at at the exclusion of why you came. Now, why, why did Jesus come? To use his power, yeah, he used his power, but to serve others. It was not to enable or uh, to uh, be all about only his own survival. If that was the case, he never would have gone to the cross in the first place. So Satan already, see, is shifting the focus away from serving others in terms of why you came in the first place. I'm going to get you off of why you're going to come, and I'm going to get you on taking care of what you deserve. Okay? So the deception there, and this is the deceptive message of today, is that happiness or security is the ultimate goal in life. Happiness or security is the ultimate goal in life. And if you're not happy and if you're not secure, then you need to do whatever you need to do to secure it, irrespective of who's affected by it. And irrespective of whether or not the way you're doing it is consistent with God's word. Okay. All right. Verse six, verse five. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is also written. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. So Satan's strategy here is to tap into the normal human desire to be liked and approved of. Jesus' popularity rating would have gone through the, through the roof. If he had stood up on the top, the highest point of the temple and jumped off, and every angel in heaven would have come down and caught him before he hit the ground. The polling numbers would have been astronomical. And as a result of that, what would have happened to the number of people following Jesus? Oh, And so you can almost sense the undercurrent message here. Think how much good you can do with all those people that will follow you. Has some rational thought to that, doesn't it? Kind of makes sense. You can do good with more. Right? Okay. But what's the deception? The deception is that he's hiding the fact that the reason why people would be following him was for what reason? For what purpose? Out of earthly power and popularity. Having nothing to do with sacrifice. When Jesus, uh, you sort of contrast that with Jesus on the cross doing what he came to do. How many people were noticing that? six. Not very many. many. John was there. Mary was there. Maybe a few other people, all the rest of the disciples scattered. Boy, how much good are you doing then? Right. And yet ultimately that was the ultimate good for us. Okay. Next page. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. So Satan's strategy is to tap into the normal human pursuit of security through what? Prosperity. Now that, oh, how could that be bad, right? It's the idea of security, ultimate security through prosperity. Prosperity. So the undercurrent message is, if you have more, that will be enough, right? What's the deception? There's never enough. There's never enough. Oh, oh, my gosh, isn't that right, Kathy? From our human perspective. I mean, see, that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, doesn't it? Yeah, we have everything we could possibly want, but it's not enough. It'll be enough if what? If I can just have that one, that one tree. Because you know what? I deserve to have enough. And the problem is, it's never enough. Yeah, somebody had their... Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah I was thinking this of these prosperity gospel types. Yes. It's always so infuriating to me because it's infuriating. the opposite of yeah. what I was raised as. That's okay? right. Okay, and it's yeah. like, I don't get how they can even call themselves Christian. Do they not see this in the Bible? It's well, again, th- they're looking at other verses in the Bible where it talks about the idea that Uh, a life of faith. You'll, you know, like Jeremiah 11, you know, I will prosper you, but it's the definition of prosper is very narrow there. Right? Yes. And so there's very little, there's very little emphasis. And, and frankly, even knowing what to do with suffering, because what's always implied in that is if you don't have the money, or if you don't have the health, or if you don't have happy people in your life, then somehow that means there's something wrong with your faith. And you're just not exercising strong enough faith. So if you were just strong enough faith. So so it's this idea of even the faith you have isn't enough, right? And so that continues to be the drumbeat that often gets. And that's very popular uh, in our area out where I live near Fort Worth. The, the uh, Kenneth Copeland ministries, that's one of the big ones for that. But there's others. Um, you sort of get little whiffs of that from Joel Olstein and some of the more what's called prosperity gospel folks. And so, again, it's, it's, I would not say not Christian because I think there is still a faith in Jesus there. But it's just the idea of what I do with that. And am I putting the comfort and security of life into the hands of my f- having enough faith, right? Or is it in God's promises irrespective of what uh, might be externally happen- happening to me in life? Okay? So uh, fi- then the final point is that contentment, if we're thinking in terms of, of, of where, uh, how do I shift from discontent to content, to being content, we have some wonderful words from, uh, from St. Paul in Philippians 4, with respect to that contentment is not dependent on external things in your life, that it's more about what's inside of you than it is on the outside of you. And so Paul says in Philippians four, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. What is the secret? He says, I've learned the secret. I want to know what is the secret? Back in verse 6. Yes. Which isn't here. At the beginning, you know, Satan says, Oh, it's in here, but it's not in here? Right. Well, it's in Scripture, but oh. it's a couple of verses back. Oh, thanks. Okay. We talked at the beginning of lesson how Satan tricked him and said, you don't have enough. Yeah. And you said, well, look around. You've got the whole garden. Right. Well, here in verse 6, it says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your thanks be known. So the, the focus is to look around at all that you have, and what you have is a relationship with your Savior, and that's the beginning. And the end your not all of So, I would just take part of what you said in terms of your relationship with your Savior. So, when you know and you remind yourself every single day and you live in it that you are God's beloved, that's the secret. And that's what then enables you to present all your requests and your prayers and and all the things in that, including the crummy things. See, not just to thank him for all the wonderful things, but to think in terms of the crummy things and to do it with thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord, for that neighbor next door who's wrong. And, And thank you for giving me the opportunity to point that out and to set them on the path to new life. But the reality is it's not about them it's about me. And really actually it's about God. Yes. To take it one step further. Yeah. That's the secret. Me that I'm not right. That's right. That's right. Yes. And and any way that we can be of help to you in that situation, please feel free to feel free to call upon us at any moment or we'll just volunteer it. How about that? Because maybe we feel led by the spirit to do that in that moment for your good. There you go. Thank you very much. Okay. All right. So that's the secret. And notice something it's learned. Are you smarter about that now at this point in your life than you were Maybe like ten years ago or twenty years ago, or I'm way smarter about that. the 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 hard thing is is that you have to learn it through uh, having a lot and then having nothing. If you have consistently a lot, it's harder to learn that that secret of contentment because because you had a lot. I mean, you know, when every need is met, when 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 there is enough in some sense of that word. Uh, it, it is harder to learn that. But then when you lose it or it's taken away or the threat of it is like put before you in some way, that's when we learn by going, oh, I guess it is more about God and what he does for me, even though I've lost everything, so to speak. Yeah, sure. I think at a younger age, when you're younger you things think, oh, if I just get this, I'll be so happy. Right. You know, like material things and then get it and it really doesn't make you, <laughs> No. you know, for maybe a short time. But, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I think as you go through life, you realize that things are not are not going to make you happy. No. You only find happiness Money you can't buy you love. love. Right. Yeah, it really was true. But it's nice <laughs> to have it. Yeah. Yeah. Maturity or
0: whatever.
1: Mm-hmm. To get to <laughs> yeah. But that. that's where that pr- it's a learned process. You know, when Paul wrote this, he was toward the end of his life. This isn't when he was a firebrand, you know, uh, gung-ho for serving Jesus. He was tired. And so reflecting back on his life, he said, I figured it out. I can do what? All things through him, through him. See, and that's the key right there. So the more that we can learn that, the better. And what a wonderful gift it is when we're reminded of that even though it's kind of annoying when it happens. Right. Okay. Let's close with prayer. Heavenly father, thank you so much for the way that your word has spoken to us. It speaks to us every day, but as we kind of bring this, uh, this study of the commandments to a close, we thank you so much for the wisdom that, uh, that it gives to us. It's a wisdom born out of the fact that you love us, that, that we are your beloved. We're, we're children of yours. We've been baptized in your name. And because of that, and in that you have said to us, you, are my sons and daughters whom I love with you. I am and with you, I am well pleased. So help us carry the confidence of that into this coming week. And as we think about the wisdom that is given to us in your commandments, help us to be, to be mindful of that as well, that that is for our good, that you know way better than we do what's good for us that we get so stuck on what uh, we deserve and, and we get so stuck on, on how we compare our lives to other people. And when it comes down to it, dear Lord, the only comparison we have is how much you love us. So watch over us this week, dear Lord. Be with us. Keep our, uh, keep our families and, and our congregation safe as we uh, look forward to meeting together again next week. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. If you want to join the discussion, please send us an email with your question or comment to messiahlutheranpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll be happy to read it during an upcoming class. You can also go to our website at www.messiahlutheranpodcast.com, where you can find links to all the previous episodes and copies of our class notes. In case you want to follow along with each episode, you can also find out where to subscribe to the podcast at messiahlutheranpodcast.com slash subscribe for links on how you can find us on iTunes, pocket casts, stitcher TuneIn, or any other podcast catcher of your choice. If you feel like we have given you any value during this podcast please consider going to our podcast page in iTunes and leaving a rating or a review. Not only will that provide us with valuable feedback that we can use to improve the podcast for you, but it will help this podcast to climb the iTunes rankings and help us spread God's message to anyone willing to listen. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this episode, and until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.